Hello, welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast for the Lancet Neurology to accompany our January 2021 issue. I'm Gavin Cleaver. I'm delighted to be joined today by Professor Michael Failings, who has two articles in our new issue. Professor Failings, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, it's a pleasure to um, have this opportunity to talk about our two recent uh, articles in Lancet Neurology. So what question were you aiming to answer with your meta-analysis on spinal cord injury, and what types of data did you end up including? So one of the big controversies in traumatic spinal cord injury has related to the role and timing of surgical intervention. And this has been a a lifelong um, academic pursuit of of myself. And this stems from work that I uh, uh, did um, in the 1980s, 1990s on the concept of secondary injury and the idea that the initial traumatic injury is amplified by a series of events called the secondary injury. And one of the contributors I felt was ongoing compression of the spinal cord and instability of the spinal column. So uh, with the advances in surgical technique, neuroanesthesia, medical care, uh, the feasibility and safety of early surgery was becoming clear, although it was still not well accepted. Then in 2012, my colleagues and I undertook the first uh, large prospective multicenter study called the Staskis study, which for the first time showed a therapeutic benefit of surgical intervention for spinal cord uh, uh, injury, and it showed that uh, early surgical intervention was safe. However, it was one study. Subsequent to this, there were a number of uh, smaller studies, which largely replicated the findings of Staskis. And then after that, my colleagues and I in 2017 put together guidelines related to the role and timing of surgical intervention. But what became clear when we put the guidelines together was that when one looked critically at the data, at best, we could only come up with a suggestion that the best uh, management would be uh, to consider early surgical intervention. And this was because we were unable to undertake a quantitative meta-analysis of the data. And so the synthesis of the data was really qualitative in nature, and it was actually based on a limited number of studies. And while the guidelines have had some impact, truthfully, they haven't actually um, had as much impact as I would have liked. There has not not really been changes in in healthcare policies. So for example, prioritizing early surgical intervention for spinal cord injury. And an example of where a prioritization has made an impact in neurology is in stroke care, which has been very uh, much transformed by early intervention. And my hope was to introduce the concept of time as spine, which is really borrowing from the concept of time as brain in stroke. So to solve this issue, uh, we decided to look at the highest quality prospective data sets, which were in the field of spinal cord injury. And these are the data sets that we ultimately uh, synthesized to formulate the article that came out in Lancet Neurology. And we synthesized the data from our Staskis trial and then from uh, three large high quality prospective data sets. One was the North American Clinical Trials Network Prospective Registry, and then two randomized trials, um, which were looking at uh, methylprednisolone, a steroid. This was the NASCIS-3 trial. And then another trial uh, called the Cygen trial, which was looking at another drug called uh, um, a GM1 ganglioside. 
we were able to synthesize data um, from over 1500 patients and we were able to do a meta-analysis of the individual patient data. So it's a very high quality, very granular data set. And what the data clearly showed was that um, surgical intervention within 24 hours of acute traumatic spinal cord injury had a dramatic impact on recovery of a variety of objective metrics, including motor function, sensory function, as, as well as an outcome measure called the age impairment uh, scale. During the review process, one of the reviewers challenged us to look back at the data and to see whether we could actually discern a time-dependent effect within the first 24 hours after injury. And we went back, looked at the data, and in fact, we're able to define a very clear linear relationship between neurological recovery and the timing of intervention within the first 24 to 36 hours. And this is the first time um, such um, an analysis um, has showed this kind of an effect. So the response to date um, from the um, spinal cord injury field and from the neurosurgical, orthopedic and, and spinal fields has been quite positive. Uh, the study is felt to uh, represent an important advance in the field. And uh, my hope will be that we will be able to now revisit the guidelines that were first authored in 2017 and to uh, strengthen the recommendations. And we are already starting to reach out to, um, to public policy officials to see whether this concept of time is spine can be encoded to influence um, healthcare delivery for people with an acute spinal cord injury. This concept of earlier is better, how, how feasible is that generally? And what are some of the next practical steps that you need to take? The, the concept that early um, intervention for serious neurological injuries is not a new one. So this has been the standard of care for people with traumatic brain injury and no patient would ever wait 24 hours to have surgical intervention for an intracranial bleed from a traumatic brain uh, uh, injury. But the concept has evolved um, because of the complexity of spinal cord injury that it would be better to uh, either manage the patient non-operatively as a whole or at least initially. And so this has changed. So the feasibility certainly is there. And another example, as I mentioned earlier, is uh, stroke care uh, delivery. So currently, uh, we've done a recent audit, uh, which is unpublished uh, to date, um, in North America. And we have found that about 60% of patients in North America are undergoing uh, surgical intervention within 24 hours. So the feasibility is there. And um, I, I think that... Um, uh, if one looks at health systems, at least in the developed world, that there are very good uh, systems for the delivery of emergency care and for extraction systems and so on. The challenge is that there's always a triage system which is in place. And so spinal cord injury has always been viewed as having a devastating impact on the individual. People recognize that it's an important issue, but in triage, it's not just the importance of the issue, it's whether early intervention has an impact, which will influence whether this patient or that patient will get uh, access, for example, to an air ambulance or to an operating theater. And with the data that we um, have now 
uh, provided through the Lancet Neurology article, I think this greatly strengthens uh, the arguments that, that um, healthcare providers have been actually trying to make already around this concept of time of spine. So your other study then, also in this issue of the Lancet Neurology, was a randomised controlled trial called CSM Protect, which was on degenerative cervical myelopathy or cervical spondylotic myelopathy. Can you tell us a little bit more about this disorder and how it's currently managed? So degenerative cervical myelopathy, which is now the preferred overarching uh, term, is the commonest cause of spinal cord impairment in adults in the world. And it affects um, uh, up to 2% uh, of the population. It can um, have quite a, a, um, an important impact on health quality of life. It, can, it, it is caused by degenerative arthritic and congenital conditions that progressively narrow the space for the spinal cord. And it can be thought of as like a slow motion spinal cord injury. Remarkably, the public and many health, primary healthcare uh, practitioners don't either don't know about this or under-recognize this. And so it's often not um, uh, diagnosed uh, correctly. And in fact, in the United Kingdom, uh, DCM has now been recognized by the House of Lords as a national priority. And there are efforts underway to, uh, to make this more recognizable. So surgical intervention uh, involving decompression and some kind of stabilization procedure for the, the cervical spine has become the standard of care for people who have moderately severe impairment and, um, and severe impairment. Patients who have milder impairment still represents a bit of a gray zone. But even with surgical intervention, most patients are left with residual impairment. Some milder, but many not. And this can have a big impact on health-related quality of life. Patients can be left with quite significant pain. And in fact, people with DCM uh, consider pain to be the most disabling issue that they face. So what's become clear is that while surgery is generally effective, it only gets you so far. And it doesn't actually address the intrinsic biomolecular changes within the core that result in neural degeneration, loss of nerve cells, and changes in the, in the spinal cord microenvironment that adversely impact function. So in parallel with the work that's been going on in DCM, there's been a wealth of work in the area of spinal cord injury. And in my own field, I started mainly in spinal cord injury and over the last uh, 15 to 20 years have evolved a research program in what might, you might call non-traumatic spinal cord injury. And DCM is an example of, um, of this. And so the idea that, for example, that um, programmed cell death or apoptosis could play an important role in uh, the evolution of neural degeneration has become a quite um, a well accepted concept in the setting of uh, DCM. So I, to undertake the, the CSM Protect trial, we repurposed an existing drug called Riliazole. Uh, Riliazole is an interesting story. It is one of the most extensively studied neuroprotective and neuroreparative drugs in science. And Riliazole is now um, considered the treatment of, of choice to slow down nerve cell degeneration in a condition called ALS or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. And we don't know the cause of the nerve cell degeneration in ALS, but we recognize that it involves mechanisms called excitotoxicity, 
where there's a release of glutamate and it causes um, a cell injury. And there's also um, an influx of sodium, uh, which also triggers molecular cascades that cause nerve cell degeneration. So riliazole is a sodium channel blocker and secondarily uh, has a positive impact on excitotoxicity. Um, in parallel with the basic science work that was supporting the use of riliazole and ALS, I studied um, the use of riliazole and sodium channel blockers in the 1990s and early 2000s. And riliazole emerged as a very promising compound. The challenge is that riliazole went generic and there was not a big interest from pharma to undertake further trials um, in spinal cord injury, which is what I was pushing. As the basic science evidence was emerging around the role of excitotoxic death, cell death in DCM, I felt that there might be an opportunity to look at the adjunctive role of riliazole and surgery in enhancing the outcomes in DCM. And that was the genesis of the CSM uh, PROTECT um, uh, clinical trial. And this was actually being run in parallel with an ongoing study in traumatic spinal cord injury, which is called the, uh, the RISCUS trial. So that was kind of the basic uh, uh, concept behind the CSM PROTECT trial. Now the challenges were that unlike other fields where there was a wealth of uh, randomized trials that had been done and where you could look at the positive aspects, some of the challenges that were faced, the, the things that were done correctly, the things that were not done correctly, we had no basis for this. So this um, was the, the very first clinical trial that had ever been done using a neuroprotective or neuroregenerative therapeutic in DCM. And so we kind of had to make things up on the fly and to take our best hunches in terms of what was the best outcome measure to choose as a primary outcome measure, what secondary outcomes uh, should we be looking at. And I think we got a lot of things right. And there's some things that, you know, I would do differently now in hindsight, and I think that um, this was pointed out in um, the, the author's comments that I made on page two of the article to try to put the research into context. In the trial, we missed a, uh, finding a positive outcome on the um, primary outcome measure, which was called the Modified Japanese Orthopedic Association Scale. We did see that patients improved with surgery, so that replicated previous findings but we could not see um, a benefit that was additive to surgery with riliazole. So the trial overall missed the primary outcome. So overall was a negative trial, but we did have um, some uh, predetermined secondary outcomes. And one of them was pain, even though at the time I did not recognize how important pain was to patients in DCM. This is actually knowledge that is emerged subsequent to our initiation of the CSM PROTECT trial. But we did see a positive effect of riliazole on the pain outcome. And so then how, you know, how do we then contextualize this? Because this wasn't the primary um, outcome measure that we looked at. And so uh, on balance, I think we, we can in, say that, okay, there wasn't a big effect on the MGOA, we recognize that. But the effects on pain and some other secondary outcomes look interesting. And so what we um, have um, encouraged uh, doctors and scientists in the field is, is to say, okay, look, use our study as a template to do further studies, 
And you might want to think about studying Riliazole in a more focused way on the pain outcome in patients with DCM. So for example, using much more sensitive outcome measures than we, we used and perhaps actually uh, selecting out the patients who are presenting mainly with a pain uh, outcome, which we did not do um, in the trial. So for DCM, what are, what are the next steps? What kind of research do you hope to see in the future? So DCM is emerging as a hot topic in certainly in spine surgery, where it's been recognized that it's important, but I think for medicine in general. And so just as a shout out, I uh, wanted to uh, recognize a project that's occurring called the Recode uh, Project. And this is being led actually by by one of my former uh, students, uh, Mark Cotter, who's now a, a professor at Cambridge University and his group. I'm collaborating on this. And a large uh, Swiss-based foundation called AO Spine is helping to support this. So the Recode project is a knowledge translation effort, which is engaging the international community and it's involving a a broad spectrum of healthcare professionals, not just surgeons, so uh, non-operative medical specialists, but also allied healthcare professionals, physiotherapists and so on, as well as uh, individuals who have DCM and uh, healthcare advocates and policy funders and so on. And so there are 10 priorities that have emerged from uh, this process. Number one priority is to raise awareness of this condition. So I think that this article in the Lancet Neurology, if it does nothing else, it's gonna dramatically raise the profile of DCM, that this is a really important condition. I think it's gonna do more than that, but it will do that. And then other priorities that have emerged are that we need better diagnostic tools. We need to educate primary healthcare practitioners, um, public in terms of the signs and symptoms to watch out for with DCM so that it can be diagnosed earlier, prevent uh, some of the uh, serious issues that are occurring. And it's also clear that there needs to be further research akin to what I tried to do with Riliazol, where we're using biomolecular science to influence the neurodegenerative cascades and to try to improve the outcome. So perhaps people who present with very mild impairment, maybe we could give people a pill. They might not need surgery and it could prevent the issues. Or if patients uh, do require surgery, we could still use a drug to enhance the beneficial effects of surgery, make the surgery safer, and then also positively influence you know, the, uh, the, the outcomes. And so my hope will be that this will open a whole avenue of uh, uh, research in essentially a new field of neurology, which will, um, you know, look at the uh, at degenerative cervical myelopathy as a condition that, uh, that, that, that merits research um, and a clinical investigation. Well, hopefully as well, this podcast will go some way into raising the profile of DCM. Professor Michael Failings, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you so much. And I appreciate the opportunity to do this podcast. And I'm also very appreciative to uh, the Lancet Neurology team. The editors have been wonderful. And I also really appreciate the very constructive peer review that I uh, received, which um, actually um, significantly enhanced the quality of both manuscripts. You can read Professor Failing's two articles in the January 2021 edition of The Lancet Neurology online now at thelancet.com. Remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation with The Lancet Neurology wherever you usually find your podcasts. Thanks for listening.